Hey there, thanks so much for listening. My name is Art Wright. I'm the senior pastor of Williamsburg Baptist Church in historic Williamsburg, Virginia. The sermon that you're about to listen to was recorded for February 21st, 2021, and is entitled, There Are No Bad Guys. It is based on the narrative lectionary reading for the first Sunday of the Lenten season. It's Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, which is the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. During this strange pandemic year, we're offering some Zoom-based spiritual formation classes and other opportunities to connect with our church family. We'd love for you to attend our Sunday evening Zoom fellowship and prayer time or Tuesday lunchtime brown bag Bible study or Sunday morning spiritual formation classes. If you'd like to find out more about any of these, head on over to www.williamsburgbaptist.com or check us out on Facebook. When we mean that anyone is welcome, we really mean it. We'd love for you to attend if you're interested. We recognize that it's one of the gifts of this time is that uh, even if you're not physically in Williamsburg, it's still possible to participate in the life of this community of faith. Whether you are a member of our church, are looking for a church home, or, or are just dropping in out of the blue, regardless, we're really glad you're listening and hope you enjoy the sermon. God bless. Thanks, Julian, for leading us so faithfully in the scripture reading this week. For those of you watching at home, I wonder if you'll take a moment to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke. The parable of the Good Samaritan is in chapter 10, but I wonder if we can glance briefly back at chapter 9, starting at verse 51. We've been in Luke's Gospel for a couple of months now, beginning at Christmas time, and we've been following the life and ministry of Jesus as he has baptized, gathered disciples, and healed and taught. And last week, Jesus was transfigured in glory high on a mountaintop. Almost directly on the heels of last week's reading, we read these words in Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is a major turning point in, Luke's minis- in Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke. From this moment forward, Jesus has his eyes toward Jerusalem, where he will ultimately be arrested, crucified, and die on a Roman cross. So everything that Jesus does in the course of the next 10 chapters in the Gospel of Luke is oriented towards this goal. Likewise, everything we do these next few weeks of Lent point toward Jerusalem and ultimately towards the cross. Now, Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem from Galilee, and Jewish pilgrims that would be traveling in that direction had a couple of options they could take as they traveled south. They could go through the region of Samaria, or they could take the long way around by crossing over the Jordan River and continuing south until they bypassed Samaria altogether, and then cross back over the river and continue on to the sacred city. Jesus and his followers evidently choose this first option, verse 52 of chapter 9. And he sent messengers ahead of them. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But the Samaritans did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. 
Now, if you're a traveler in the first century, traveling for several days like Jesus and his disciples would be, your very life is dependent on the hospitality of strangers. There are no red roof inns or motel eights to stop at on the road to Jerusalem. And so hospitality is a key virtue in the ancient world precisely because of this reason. You're at the mercy of strangers when you're on the road to keep you safe and to feed you and to shelter you. Which is why the disciples are so angry at the Samaritans when they refuse them a place to stay. Verse 54, the disciples say, Lord, do you want us to command fire down from heaven and consume them? This is a rather remarkable uh, response. But the disciples and the Samaritans are behaving exactly like Samaritans and Jews might be expected to treat one another in the first century. Jews and Samaritans more, after, more often than not loathed one another because of religious and ethnic differences, theological differences, political differences. It was a centuries-old conflict between these two people groups. If you ask me later or come to Brown Bag Bible Study on Tuesday or uh, our Sunday evening um, Zoom fellowship hour, I'd be glad to explain why there's a rift between these two groups. But this is the important point. For Jewish people in the first century, there is no such thing as a good Samaritan. It's entirely an oxymoron. We hear the term Samaritan today and we probably think, oh yeah, Samaritans, they're so good, right? We know the story. But good Jews in the first century knew better. Samaritans were awful. They were the bad guys. So why not just rain fire down on them from heaven and be done with it? And the feelings were mutual for the Samaritans, to be fair. Let's bring that information with us into today's scripture reading just one chapter later. An expert in the Jewish law approaches Jesus. We might think of him as a religious scholar. He has, we might imagine him having an MDiv or perhaps a PhD in biblical studies. He's probably the type of guy you'd want to have as a pastor of your congregation. We can't know for sure his motives for asking the question that he does to Jesus. It may be that he wants to test Jesus, or perhaps he wants to bolster his own reputation and standing among Jewish religious leaders through getting the backing of this other respected teacher. Maybe he just wants to feel better about himself at the end of the day. Maybe he just wants to feel like he's at least doing more than the bare minimum that it takes to be considered righteous in God's eyes. We just don't know. However you read it, he asks Jesus this question, who is my neighbor? And you probably know the rest because it's one of the most famous passages in all of scripture. Jesus tells a story, a parable of a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You should look up some images on the internet later if you think to. It's a dry, dangerous, desert, wilderness area. The kind that, uh, that we have on our banner out front for the Lenten season ahead. It's the kind of area you probably find yourself looking over your back from time to time and you quicken your pace as you're walking if you see someone that looks suspicious to you. It's the sort of place that bandits frequented, folks that were doing what they had to do to survive because the economy of the first century Roman Empire was top-heavy and tilted in favor of the, the wealthy elite. 
And so sure enough, the man that's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho is robbed. He's attacked, robbed, stripped, beaten, left for dead. And a priest walks by. If you were lying in the ditch, perhaps exactly who you'd hope would walk by. This man was one of the chief religious leaders of the Jewish faith. Wealthy, privileged, aristocratic, probably wearing a nice outfit. He probably had an awful lot of scripture memorized. He could probably quote Leviticus beginning to end if he had been asked the question about eternal life. And yet he walks right by the man in the ditch. Now it's probably too much to try to read between the lines about what his motives are for passing by. For far too long, Christian interpreters have suggested that what happens here points to a fatal flaw in the Jewish faith. That this priestly figure didn't want to become ritually impure because of contact with a dead man. But the priest is walking away from the temple, not towards it. So it's probably not what's going on here. I think it's much more likely that he kept walking for the same reason that we keep walking sometimes. There are plenty of times in our lives when, when we'd rather not stick our necks out for someone else. The bandits might still be around after all. So the priest quickens his pace. He probably offers thoughts and prayers and soon vanishes in the distance. A Levite also walks by, keeping his distance. And these were lay priests, not quite as high in the religious hierarchy, but still respected. And the man lying in the ditch thinks he's done for. He's bleeding, parched, with no water and no clothes to protect him from the desert sun. It's, it's only a matter of time. Lo and behold, he squints his eyes against the sun and sees a figure approaching just the silhouette at first because it's so bright. His hopes soar, but then the stranger calls out to ask if he needs for help. And the man recognizes the accent. Darn it, he thinks. It's a Samaritan. Insert your cuss word of choice here. The man thinks, I'm a goner. There's no chance a Samaritan is going to help me. He might even finish me off himself. We know what happens next, though. The Samaritan moves over because he's moved by pity. He bandages his wounds. He picks him up and wraps him in clothes and carries him on his animal to a safe place, and even pays for his ongoing care. It's more than the man lying in the ditch would have ever expected or hoped for from a Samaritan. Jesus finishes telling the story, and no doubt everyone who is standing around listening is standing slack-jawed and quiet as Jesus finishes the story. You could have heard a pen drop. Because this story is so familiar to us, we've lost the shock value of it 20 centuries later. But when Jesus asks the lawyer which of the men was a neighbor to the man, the lawyer can't even bring himself to respond with the words, the Samaritan. He's too uncomfortable admitting it or even saying the words. It's shocking. So I'm curious, if you had to retell this story today, who would you cast as a Samaritan in the story in your own life? Take a minute to think about it.
You may or may not be familiar with the Cotton Patch Gospel. It's a creative paraphrase of parts of the Bible by a man named Clarence Jordan. Jordan was the founder of Queenania Farms in Georgia, and he wrote a series of books called the Cotton Patch Gospel to try to convey the story of, of Scripture in a way that would reveal its meaning to mid-20th century readers in Georgia and in other parts of the American South. In his retelling of this parable to an audience in the racially segregated and profoundly divided Deep South, it's a white preacher and then a white gospel singer that pass by the injured man in the story. And lo and behold, it's a black man who stops to help out. For Jordan, writing to white readers in the South, he imagines that a black man would be enough of a villain that it would have the same shock value as it did in the first century. So who would you cast as the Samaritan today? To t today? A Muslim? Mexican immigrant? A Republican or Democrat? A Black Lives Matter advocate or a white supremacist? Amy Jill Levine suggests a terrorist, I think, if I remember correctly. It's whoever you and I have deeply rooted personal prejudices against, whom we automatically distrust or perhaps even think is evil to the core. Fill in the blank. My children like to create all sorts of narratives with their toys, as I'm sure you can imagine, and plenty of them entail good guys and bad guys. You probably remember doing the same thing when you were a kid, whether you were playing cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians, neither of which are particularly PC anymore. TV shows and movies and video games reinforce this view of the world, that the world is us versus them, good guys versus bad guys, that there are people who are inherently good and inherently evil. And so, as a parent, I often find myself trying to explain this to them. In real life, there's no such thing as bad guys. There are people who are misguided or misinformed, misled or miseducated. There are people who have different beliefs or religions or political opinions. And sometimes we have very strong differences of opinion. There are people that are just plain wrong. There are people who have different opinions of what the truth is. There are people who make selfish decisions, bad decisions, hurtful decisions. There are people who are guided by their basic will to survive the uphill battle they face against poverty and systemic injustices. And at the other end of the spectrum, there are people who have been corrupted by wealth and power to the point where they use and abuse others. There are people who have suffered trauma or struggle with mental health challenges. And there are people who do profoundly evil things in this world. But still, I think this is true even though it's a tough pill to swallow. There are no bad guys. Not even Samaritans. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I'd love to hear from you. But if you are lying in a ditch, 
beat up to within an inch of your life, you aren't going to care who walks over and saves you, are you? You're just going to be really grateful that they did. Right? When you roll up your sleeve and get your COVID vaccine, do you care who gives it to you if it's going to save your life? Whoever it is, that's your neighbor. If we believe the witness of scripture, we all bear the image of God, each and every one. As hard as that is to believe these days, there is no one that does not bear the image of God in this world. Sometimes that's profoundly hard to see, but it should radically alter and affect how we interact with other people in this world, now more than ever in this deeply divided time. There are no bad guys. Each and every one of us is created in the image of God, even Samaritans. Friends, it's Lent. Are you giving up anything this year? What if rather than chocolate or wine, what if we were to give up the notion of bad guys altogether? and come to see each and every person as our neighbor, each and every person as beloved of God, even the person we least expect. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do this, and you will live. Thanks be to God. Amen.